Hi, All of Life. This is Trevor. Um, we had a few technical difficulties on Sunday that prevented us from being able to record. Uh, and so you get um, this as a way of kind of keeping our whole church body up to date. Uh, so we are going to continue in Matthew chapter 5, and we are in the Beatitudes, which in many ways is the introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount, the largest body of Jesus's teaching in the New Testament. Now, so where we are going to begin is just by reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, and that is the Beatitudes. So uh, I'm just going to jump right in. This is chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and under utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is God's word. Now, we are today focusing in on the second beatitude, which is uh, actually verse 4, and that is Jesus' teaching that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, um, we know that the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the qualities of a kingdom citizen, someone who lives under the reign and the rule of God's um, or of God's kingdom. Um, and so we see that these, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are in many ways uh, the social norms, like the human on human norms of God's reign, when his will and his way are in our hearts. And from a worldly perspective, uh, almost the entirety of Jesus's teaching seems upside down. It feels really counterintuitive from a worldly perspective. Another way of putting that is according to the world, the ways and the teachings of Jesus are no way to get ahead. And in many ways that's true. And that is because the kingdom of God was never about getting ahead in the first place. The kingdom of God is all about God's glory and his holiness and his goodness. But through God receiving glory and humans living in a way that glorifies him, humanity actually experiences the truest fulfillment. So all those things that the world desires in trying to get ahead the kingdom of God is not about satisfying those things alone, but through pursuing God's glory, what we're really after in the first place is satisfied. And we see that right off the bat, the contrast between a worldly perspective and God's perspective in this sentence, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Because according to the world, those who mourn are those who are not blessed. The reason you're mourning is because you are not blessed. If you were blessed, You'd have no reason to mourn. Everything would be going well. When God's favor is upon you, everything is easy and well, and you have nothing to be sad about. But right here, out of Jesus' mouth, we hear him saying, blessed are you who mourn. And so we see that there's a, a, like a butting heads of the world's perspective and God's true perspective and what God is all about. So um, we see from a godly perspective that um, mourning 
Uh, or in many ways, God identifies with those who mourn. In many ways, he empathizes with them. And we see his heart is to um, care and to provide comfort. And we see that um, within a godly perspective, mourning is unavoidable. And the reason that it is unavoidable is because um, as Christians, as Christ followers, we are more and more beginning to know God's heart and to share his heart and experience his heart. And when we know him and share his heart and experience his heart, then we actually mourn with him. So that is our framework for today. As we consider blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Our whole framework is those three things. That we as Christians are more and more knowing God's heart, that we are more and more sharing his heart, and that we, through Christ, are able to experience his heart. So those are the big three things. Now, um, we're just going to jump into knowing his heart. And we know in blessed are those who mourn, that uh, Jesus is identifying with those who mourn. He says, I see you. I see you who mourn, and you're blessed in my eyes, and I will comfort you. So that's the first thing we see. Last week, we talked about um, another part of Matthew chapter 5 that showed us that Jesus has incredibly high values of righteousness. Uh, Jesus says, I have not come to bend or dilute or in any way nullify the law of God, the righteous requirements of God. I've come to fulfill those things while upholding them. But then he also later says, if your eye would cause you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to lose an eye than to end up in hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to lose a hand than for you to end up in hell. So we see Jesus has a very high value of God's standard of righteousness. But we also see in the, in the story of Matthew, in the life of Jesus, that he is merciful and he's loving. We saw in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in the context of that, he is saying, I'm here for those who can't save themselves. I'm not here for those who think they have it all. I'm here for those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need, who cannot save themselves, and I'm here to rescue them. Now, uh, we also see um, Jesus actually living these things out in the exact paragraph right before the Beatitudes. So in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus' spirit where he is uh, upholds righteousness, but he also is here to comfort and to rescue and provide mercy and express love to those um, who don't deserve it. And so in chapter 4, verse 23, the exact paragraph right before the Beatitudes, it says this, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. His fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all of the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases, with pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. So we see that as Jesus is saying, blessed are you who mourn, for you will receive comfort. He is literally comforting those who are mourning. Those who through physical or spiritual pain are mourning in need of rescue and help. And he's literally embodying God's comfort to them. Now we see this exact same promise of comfort and rescue and mercy in the Old Testament. We see that God is consistent since day one. Um, and he's consistent in the life of Jesus. And he's consistent in the promises for the future. And so we just kind of like frame our understanding of knowing God's heart, knowing his consistency, but also understanding mourning from God's perspective. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. So if you can turn to Isaiah 61, um, do that. While uh, you're, you're turning there, I just want to give you some context for Isaiah 
in one sentence, okay? Isaiah is a large book. There's a lot going on. But in one sentence, through Isaiah, God is prophesying. He's speaking to the people of Israel in a particular point in history, but he's also kind of like forecasting, speaking to all of God's people in the future. And um, through Isaiah, he's talking to people who are past their eyeballs in injustice, and they are by no means trusting in God or are walking in a way that's humble to him. And so God says that I will purify my people through judgment for the sake of giving grace. And as so that's kind of the larger context. And as Isaiah is doing that and proclaiming that, that, that sense of judgment, but also rescue, uh, Isaiah swells in a couple different ways as he's speaking to different people groups um, and calling out different evils, but also giving different promises. And where Isaiah really fully crescendos into its most beautiful um, prophecy is the proclamation of the good news where God says, I will glorify myself. I will display my glory and grace through rescuing people that don't deserve it. And he promises himself in rescue and in good news to people that don't deserve it. So that's where we're at. In Isaiah 61, we're smack in the middle of that crescendo of promise, that crescendo of good news. So this is verse one through four. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant... (laughs) The spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks or trees of righteousness, planted by the Lord that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Now, we see God's heart here in Isaiah really clearly. And though this is in many ways a promise, and it's a promise of rescue and good news, I want to point out that there's also mourning in here. God's heart is deeply grieved in mourning. And we see that because of why he needs to save and why he promises rescue. It's because he sees what's broken. So in this, he's saying like, I see creation that I love. I see real life human beings. And what God is saying is I see you when you're poor and you're living in poverty. I see you when you're brokenhearted, when you're bound in physical or spiritual chains in prison. I see that you're faint. I see the ruined cities that you're living in see the devastation that spans generations. And God's heart in all those things is he mourns and he yearns to save. He yearns that it would not be so. And there's promise here, but before we transition to that promise, I want to pause because we can hear that, the, the poverty, the misery, the devastation of generations, the mourning, and we can minimize that. I know for me, um, based on my life experiences, I can minimize what that looks like. 
But remember, our purpose here is to know God, and we know that God spans all time, and his knowledge is for all of humanity, all of creation. And so when God says, I bring good news to the poor, those who are brokenhearted, he, he literally means like those who are poor to the point, like all the men, women, and children who have starved to death in their poverty across human history, those who are brokenhearted, all those who have wept themselves to sleep for the sake of lost loved ones or destroyed towns or villages or war or famine. He says, I proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are in prison, those who are literally in prison, those who are tortured and beaten across all of human history, across the globe, across all of time. When it says here at the bottom, they shall repair ruined cities. Within this last century, there was a point where we as Americans participated in the destruction of Japan through the atomic bomb. When you have that image in your head and all of a sudden you read ruined cities, like that is the ruin, the annihilation of millions of human beings who God knows and loves individually. That's the ruin that God sees. So we can't minimize that, right? There's mourning within God's heart that's here. But it also, this is not just a declaration of mourning. This is really a crescendo of good news where he says, I see you, I mourn for you, but I promise rescue. And so God is saying, I have good news for you. I will heal you, I will free you, I will comfort you. I will remove your faint spirit, that anxiety, that depression. And he says, I will rescue. I will give you oil of gladness. You will wear peace and beauty like a headdress. I will plant you like trees that are sturdy and strong in righteousness. And so it's good, good news in this promise. And so through this prophecy in Isaiah, we begin to know God's heart. And so what we know is that he is, in the context of Isaiah, angry at the offender. We know that he mourns for and he comforts the victim. And you and I know through the entirety of our lives, we will be both the offender and the victim a thousand times. So we see that um, part of this rescue within God's heart is already occurring. We see that he mourns with us, he's come to rescue us, and through the life of Christ, that rescue has begun. And through the life of Christ, we as Christ followers have a new heart that's capable of knowing God's heart, capable of sharing God's heart. And so what that simply means is that knowing God's heart means knowing his postures, his motivations, how he acts, and sharing his heart means we begin to reflect and become, begin to embody those things, sharing his motivations, his posture, the way he acts towards his creation. And so if God mourns over the destruction of creation, we in sharing his heart begin to mourn the devastation of creation also. And so um, we know that mourning is present across all of human experience. So um, there must be a distinction then of, of godly mourning, the way that God mourns, and we as um, Christians begin to mourn with him. And there's a distinction between how the world mourns. So there, there is kind of a, a distinction between those two. And, and the three points that I want to make today is that there's a difference in worldly and godly mourning in their severity, that there's a distinction in their cause and what they actually mean, and there's a distinction in how a worldly perspective and a godly perspective responds. So the severity, the cause, and the way that we respond. So um, uh, just to start, the distinction between worldly and Christian uh, mourning and their severity. So to the world, um, the world often looks at Christians and says, um, Christians are not capable of mourning. Um, 
Christians have created a, a deity of their own imagination that takes away mourning and struggle in the world. The world life is too harsh, and so Christians and religious people have invented a God that makes everything better. I think this is flat out a misjudgment, because I think Christian mourning is actually far more severe. It's far more terrifying, and it's far more uncomfortable. And here's why. Well, to start with, what is worldly mourning? Um, worldly mourning is simply from a worldly perspective, right? And so right now, our cultural moment, uh, our current cultural perspective is that um, all, of, all of the universe and we as human civilization are primarily here by accident. Uh, we don't really know how we came to be here, why we're here. All we know is that we are here. And we assume that uh, things have always been in the past the way they are now, and they will always be in the future the way they are in the present. So there's kind of a, we don't know why we're here, and there's a continuity that things always have been the way they are, and they always will be the way they are. Um, and so within that framework, if there's no outside deity that gives value or beauty to anything, then all everything that is in life's contents, um, we prescribe it value and beauty and meaning. So we essentially are the judge of what is valuable, what is not, what is good, what is not. If something is ruined or destroyed, we decide is that good, bad, or otherwise. And so within a worldly perspective, um, there absolutely is mourning. There absolutely is pain. Uh, there's absolutely sadness. Uh, that is across all of the human experience. Um, but the distinction then of, of worldly mourning is, so, excuse me, uh, worldly mourning is primarily about the pain that we experience and the sadness and the loss that goes with it. And we give value or judgment to that. Um, godly mourning includes that in many ways. It includes the pain we experience that we mourn, but it also goes far deeper. And here's why. Because the Christian perspective or Christian or godly mourning also includes the larger context of God. Imagine this. Um, all of the galaxies of creation are God's. He owns them and he, he imagined them and he invented them and he created them. And with that, he gave them value. And he says, these things are good and I love them and I give them value. And so we, as we know God's value that he gives something, when, when his creation begins to get tarnished or ruined, we ache with him. Uh, we know this intuitively, right? If, if I, for example, crash my car or break something that I own, um, it stinks. I might mourn and have sadness over that, but ultimately it's my thing and, and it has the value that I give it. But if a, a person that I love entrusts me with their vehicle or, or whatever item and they say, Trevor, this is valuable to me. I love this thing and I'm entrusting it to you. And now I go and wreck that car or break that thing. Like my gut doesn't just drop because I've experienced pain. I also, my gut drops because of the pain that I know this person I care for has. This thing that they valued is now destroyed. So Christian mourning or godly mourning is more severe because we're not mourning only our own experience. We're also mourning that of God, the destruction and the tarnishing of the things that he loves. Now Christian mourning is also more severe because of the cause, because we realize that I, in many ways, am part of the problem. I look inside of me and I realize I am part of the destruction of God's good and lovely creation. I'm part of the problem. 
And this in many ways is poor in spirit. This is what we talked about last week. And so we mourn or Christian mourning is more severe because I'm part of the problem. Now, the last reason that Christian mourning is more severe is because as we look around us and we see the brokenness of the world, we know that God mourns for those things. Even if we aren't experiencing them, we know God mourns with him and we mourn with him. But we also recognize that things were not always this way. The story of Genesis tells us that when God created all of heaven and earth and he filled it and populated it with plants and animals and humans, he said it was good and lovely and complete. So we know that the muck that we find ourselves in and the pain and the suffering that we experience so frequently are a fall from something good. And so we not only mourn where we're at, we mourn the fact that we were in this, like there was this beautiful creation that has been tarnished and has experienced the fall. And so that distinction between good creation and our current broken reality, that gives us more external awareness and even greater reason to mourn and share God's heart. Now, the last thing I said, the distinction between um, worldly mourning and godly mourning is the way that we respond. So from a worldly perspective, the way a worldly person responds to mourning, well, one, there's no, there's no God outside that provides rescue and our comfort. And so um, mourning for us is really kind of a dead end. There's um, nothing after mourning other than hopefully moving past. There's no true resolution nor healing. And because of that, because mourning is a dead end and it's painful, the worldly perspective avoids it. And another uh, way, if it's not avoiding, we distract ourselves from it or we scramble to fix the problem. Um, And so uh, I think we feel this, right? We often avoid those things that are painful. And if that pain has no purpose, then we avoid it. Um, Now, in addition to avoiding um, mourning and pain, and in addition to distracting ourselves from it, and in addition to scrambling to fix it, uh, we also numb ourselves in the worst of ways through turning the source of that pain, that mourning, into entertainment. Think about that for a moment. Consider all of the violence and destruction that is present in our movies. Consider the relational need and destruction that's present in our TV shows and our news outlets. And it's not just digital, right? Think of the things that we often joke about. Humor often is in the most appalling and like mournsome things in the world. And so we see that part of the way that the world copes with mourning and pain is by turning it into entertainment. And we sell that entertainment and we celebrate that entertainment. All of that is to say the worldly perspective avoids it. Now, the godly perspective um, embraces it. And part of that is because from a godly perspective, we know that that is the truest form of reality. That if God is mourning the brokenness of creation and God's perspective is the truest form of reality, then we, as Christ followers, align ourselves with that. And if God is mourning, we mourn. So there's just no avoiding it. Um, But more than that, though, um, part of the reason that we uh, respond and embrace mourning is because we're able to embrace it knowing it's no longer a dead end. So from a worldly perspective, mourning is a dead end. It's painful. And at best, you have the ability to move beyond it. Um, 
from a Christian perspective or a godly perspective, mourning is the first step of aligning ourselves with God's true reality, acknowledging that he mourns and we mourn with him. It's the first step to acknowledging our need and our role in the tarnishing of creation, that we are poor in spirit. And it's the first step in receiving comfort and healing that is true and putting our hope in the rescue of the King. So we are made able to mourn actually from our experience of God's heart. So that is our third and kind of like our final lens for today is that we experience comfort through God's heart and we know and we share God's heart through experiencing him. So um, before we go on, I just want to acknowledge that um, all of this that we're saying, knowing God's heart, sharing his heart, especially towards mourning and experiencing him more and more, none of that is a one-time transaction. All of this is over time transformational. Uh, the, the New Testament calls this sanctification, being made more and more holy inch by inch, degree by degree, as we walk and abide with Christ, as we experience him and come to trust him and be transformed by him. So um, as we consider experiencing God's heart, we need to recognize that as Americans, um, we are shaped oftentimes just as much by the culture around us as we're shaped by God himself. So absolutely, God is a primary shaping influence over our lives and our hearts, but we're also shaped by the culture around us. So what that often looks like is American Christianity. And um, often accidentally, American Christianity approaches mourning in the same way that the world does. Um, and what that means is that um, the American Christian avoids just as much as the world does, and it distracts just as much as the world does, and scrambles to fix just as much as the world does. And um, honestly, I find myself doing this constantly, and I realize that this is a great area of unbelief in my life. And all of us, as Christ followers, are on the journey of loosening our ties to the world around us, in many ways becoming more and more un-American, as we are becoming more and more Christian and more and more Christ-like. That is our goal, to be holy like Christ. That is our destination. So I think there's two reasons that we as American Christians don't mourn. Um, I think the first one is just as American Christians, we've culturally misunderstood the heart of God. Um, what we have thought is that if we have enough faith and enough trust, it means we will not mourn. Right? Mourning or sadness or depression is a failure by the Christian to not have enough faith. That's the cultural misunderstanding. And so what that essentially boils down to is like, don't be sad, be happy. Remember, God loves you. And we know that ultimately like that's a, a artificial version of trust in Christ. And it's a shallow version of trust in Christ. And we know this again because of our very first point of knowing God's heart, God does mourn. And as Christians, we share his heart. So we too mourn the things that he mourns. And Christ himself embodied this tension of joy and mourning. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, gave himself for us. So he had great joy as he began his rescue plan, as he came in human form to rescue us. But we also see um, in John chapter 11 uh, that Jesus also mourns. And so he simultaneously has great joy while he also mourns. Uh, the story of John chapter 11 is about Lazarus and Jesus' friend, Lazarus. 
And the story you might be familiar with is that uh, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died and has been buried. And Jesus has been asked to come back. And um, as Jesus is, Jesus is returning, uh, he has full intentions and full knowledge that he will bring Lazarus back from the dead, that he will let, uh, heal him. And so there is joy for the healing that he knows will come. But before he does that, he stops and he weeps. Remember, in that moment, Jesus is fully aware of what he can do and what he will do and the joy before him. But he also stops and he weeps. And I think it's because in that moment, he knows God's heart and he's sharing God's heart fully. And he says, I mourn death in the world, even as I look forward to the joy before me of rescue and healing. And so we see that in, in some ways, like Jesus gives us permission to mourn. Mourning then is not a lack of trust. Mourning is an alignment with God's reality. So that brings me to my second reason that I think um, Christians uh, sometimes fail to mourn. The first was that we've misunderstood the heart of God and we think that mourning is failure and lack of trust. I think the second reason is that we, in many ways, just um, do not trust. And my, my point is that mourning is an act of trust. Because we trust, we mourn. Now, this is my own story of realizing some of the ways I, I have not and do not trust God enough to mourn. So a few years ago, uh, I had more reason in my life to mourn than ever before. Um, I had experienced some loss in my family. I was entering adulthood more fully than ever in the past. And with that came adult responsibilities. And I was failing to live up to many of those responsibilities. And so I had guilt and shame over those things. I was also um, experiencing the, the cost of true loyalty in relationship. When you can't run away when a relationship is painful and you are committed to that relationship, often it is far more painful. Um, so amidst all of this, the sense of loss and failure and relational challenge, um, I was experiencing um, sadness, deep sadness. I was experiencing guilt and shame, anger up to my eyeballs, like ongoing frustration, and just loss, like deep loss. Anxiety was kind of interwoven among all of it. But the problem with that was that I didn't know I was feeling any of those things. They were all present, but I didn't even know that they were there. And it, the reason that I was in that quandary was I had grown a false belief that maturity and faith meant not feeling those things. And, and here's what my false belief said. They said that you are mature in Christ when you have no sense of shame or guilt. Uh, if you can trust him in all things and place your hope in him, then you will have no guilt and then you will be mature. Uh, I, I, my false belief said that you are healthy relationally when you don't get angry or frustrated, when you're calm and loving. That's what emotional health looks like. That you are stable as a person when you don't struggle with sadness or anxiety, when you are always living a good life. And, and I find, found myself in the past, but also often now, I want to be mature. I want to be healthy. I want to be stable but I had come to a false understanding of what those looked like and how those things came to be. And so what happened is I began to put those things on artificially rather than a true or a deep sense. 
And so in order to view myself as um, mature and stable and to suppress all the things that I felt disqualified me. So by God's grace, um, that changed about two years ago. Um, Life blew up in a significant enough of a way that all of the anger and frustration and anxiety got squeezed out of me and it got squeezed out and brought into the open. And as I began to see it, it scared me bad enough that I realized one, that it was there and two, that I needed help in processing through those things. And so um, gladly through some professional counseling, um, I was able to see for the first time, honestly, what was really going on below the surface of my heart. Uh, I realized that, or I was able to see that I was experiencing all of those emotions and all of them were legitimate reasons to mourn. All of them were things that needed to be acknowledged and mourned. But it was because I was scared of feeling the pain of those things and the, the judging myself against those things that I suppressed them and I hid them. And I avoided and I numbed. And what this counselor and friend helped me to learn and to do was how to abide, how to abide in Christ, to rest in his presence, to remain in his love. Because I hadn't learned how to abide, I didn't actually trust him. I didn't trust that in my mourning, he would comfort me. So I avoided my mourning. I viewed mourning as a dead end. But as I learned how to abide, to be with him and experience his heart, I began to trust him in my mourning. I began to trust him as my comforter. And so this was how I began to experience God's heart and receive comfort for realistically the first time. Now, I don't know for you, if you share any of those false beliefs, what it means to be mature or healthy or stable and how you become those things. Um, I know for me, it's kind of a constant back and forth as I remember, forget and grow and kind of diminish. But over time, through abiding with him and experiencing God's heart, I know that I am more and more becoming Christ-like, more and more being conformed to the image of Christ. And so I know for you, like your, your false beliefs are probably unique, your pain and the ways that you mourn are unique. But I think in this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. This is God's invitation for us to know his heart, that he is empathetic with us, for us to share his heart, and for us to experience and receive comfort by experiencing his heart. So what the beatitude is not, is it is not saying display mourning so as to earn my mercy. It is not God saying, I want to bless you so mourn so that you earn my mercy. Instead, we know that through Christ, he has got, or Christ has already earned God's full pleasure, God's full love, God's full um, presence. Um, and so Christian mourning is not as an act of earning mercy and earning rescue. Uh, that rescue and that mercy comes from Christ first. This comes from being poor in spirit and receiving Christ uh, here is just a way that we know and experience um, that Christ has come to fulfill and to give us the promises of God, that we don't earn those promises and that mercy through our mourning or anything else, but has come only through the fulfillment of Christ. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and Jesus stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim, or excuse me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We see that out of the mouth of Christ, he's saying this is fulfilled. Everything that we saw in Isaiah where God is saying, I see what is broken. I see creation that I love. I see these real life human beings. I see the way that they're poor. They're brokenhearted. They're in physical and spiritual prisons. I see you when you're faint. I see your ruined cities. I see the devastation that spans generations. God's heart that says, I mourn for you and I yearn to save. This is fulfilled in Christ. We don't earn this. This is gifted to us through Christ fulfilling it. And he says, I have good news for you. I will heal you. I will free you. I will comfort you. I'll remove your faint spirit, your anxiety, and you will wear peace and beauty and gladness. I will plant you like an oak, sturdy and strong in my righteousness. This is the king, the king who has fulfilled this. This is the king who we now have new life and new security in. This is the king that secures rescue for us. This is the king who says, blessed are you who mourn. Not because you're not sure if you have mercy, but blessed are you who mourn because I've fulfilled this promise. I will rescue you and I will comfort you. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to mourn good enough, long enough, hard enough. I have mourned in all the ways you need to mourn. I have known God's heart in all the ways you need to know God's heart. And I have fulfilled this for you. This is what Christ has done for us. As we like rejoice in that and as we like lean into the Beatitudes and we say, God, I know I don't need to do any of this to earn your favor, but it's beautiful and I want to align my heart with you. I want to know you and share your heart and experience your heart, even as it comes to mourning. As we lean into that and we trust him enough to mourn, not as a dead end, but as a way of aligning ourselves with his reality, as a way of coming to him poor in spirit, needing rescue, and as a way of coming to him for comfort, as we do those things, we're freed from certain forms of living and we're freed toward certain forms of living. Here's what we're freed from as we're freed to trust him in mourning. We're freed from having false piety or another way of saying that is just being detached religiously. Like I'm just being removed, unwilling to um, be joyful. Where um, we realize through the life of Christ that gladness is not wrong, but it also means we're freed from being artificially happy because mourning is failure and a lack of faith. We also are freed from wallowing because God's heart is not only mourning, his, his heart is rescue and promise and freedom. And so we mourn with him, but we don't wallow because the king has come and he will come again and we have gladness and goodness that we get to rejoice. So what that means is we're freed from all of that and we're freed toward a life that is sober. 
And what I mean by that is self-aware, a life that is poor in spirit, that acknowledges our place before God and our need before him. It means that we're gracious. We're gracious to both the victim and the offender as God is. But it also means we're motivated. We're motivated to serve and heal a world that is mourning, a world that is broken. It also means that we're joyful. We're freed to become joyful because we have like peace in the love and the rescue of God earned us by Christ. So we are securely planted in his family. We have nothing to lose through the gift of Christ. So church, um, this is the words of Jesus. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Would you pray with me? Um, Father, uh, it's a weird thing to ask for mourning, either for myself or for the people who are part of all of life. But I think um, there's something good as we realize like our mourning is in alignment with you to seeing the true reality that the world is broken and in need of rescue. And I see like mourning is an act of trust in you that trusts that you will be the one who comforts and fixes, not me. Um, that even as I experience the pain of that, you'll be present and you'll carry us. Father, I also just like recognize um, we will never mourn entirely in the ways that you mourn. We don't earn our way into your love through our displays of mourning. You're letting us be transformed through your son to know you, share your heart, and experience your heart. Not so we have to be a certain way, but like we're literally beginning to be made new by you. And so good, Lord. Thank you. Father, would you help us to mourn and would you please comfort us? Amen.